Hello, and welcome to day five of A Miserable Year. I'm Anthony Adler, and I'm going to be reading you the whole of Le Miserable. Today's episode gets us exactly 173rd of the way through the book. We hear about the bishop's routine, Madame Magloire's excellent strategy for getting decent dinners, and, strangely enough, the man that Victor Hugo claimed as his own great-great-uncle. As ever, you can get in touch on Twitter at A Miserable Year, or by email at amiserableyear at gmail.com. Le Miserable, Volume 1, Fontine, Book the First, A Just Man, Chapter 5, Monseigneur Bienvenu made his cassocks last too long. The private life of Monseigneur Muriel was filled with the same thoughts as his public life. The voluntary poverty in which the Bishop of Dean lived would have been a solemn and charming sight for anyone who could have viewed it close at hand. Like all old men, and like the majority of thinkers, he slept little. This brief slumber was profound. In the morning, he meditated for an hour, then he said his mass, either at the cathedral or in his own house. His mass said he broke his fast on rye bread dipped in the milk of his own cows. Then he set to work. A bishop is a very busy man. He must every day receive the secretary of the bishopric, who is generally a canon, and nearly every day his vicar's general. He has congregations to reprove, privileges to grant, a whole ecclesiastical library to examine, prayer books, diocesan catechisms, books of hours, etc., charges to write, sermons to authorise, cures and mayors to reconcile, a clerical correspondence, an administrative correspondence, on one side the state, on the other the Holy See, and a thousand matters of business. What time was left to him after these thousand details of business? and his offices, and his breviary. He bestowed first on the necessitous, the sick, and the afflicted. The time which was left to him from the afflicted, the sick, and the necessitous, he devoted to work. Sometimes he dug in his garden. Again, he read, or wrote. He had but one word for both these kinds of toil. He called them gardening. The mind is a garden, said he. Towards midday, when the weather was fine, he went forth and took a stroll in the country or in town, often entering lowly dwellings. He was seen walking alone, buried in his own thoughts, his eyes cast down, supporting himself on his long cane, clad in his wadded purple garment of silk, which was very warm, wearing purple stockings inside his coarse shoes, and surmounted by a flat hat which allowed three golden tassels of large bullion to droop from its three points. It was a perfect festival wherever he appeared. One would have said that his presence had something warming and luminous about it. The children and the old people came out on the doorsteps for the bishop, as for the son. He bestowed his blessing, and they blessed him. They pointed out his house to anyone who was in need of anything. Here and there he halted, accosted the little boys and girls, and smiled upon the mothers. He visited the poor, so long as he had any money. When he no longer had any, he visited the rich. As he made his cassocks last a long while, and did not wish to have it noticed, he never went out in the town without his wadded purple cloak. This inconvenienced him somewhat in the summer. 
On his return, he dined. The dinner resembled his breakfast. At half-past eight in the evening, he supped with his sister, Madame Magloire standing behind them and serving them at table. Nothing could be more frugal than this repast. If, however, the bishop had one of his curés to supper, Madame Magloire took advantage of the opportunity to serve Monseigneur with some excellent fish from the lake, or with some fine game from the mountains. Every curé furnished the pretext for a good meal. The bishop did not interfere. With that exception, his ordinary diet consisted only of vegetables boiled in water and oil soup. Thus it was said in the town, when the bishop does not indulge in the cheer of a curé, he indulges in the cheer of a trappist. After supper, he conversed for half an hour with Mademoiselle Baptistine and Madame Magloire. Then he retired to his own room and set to writing, sometimes on loose sheets and again on the margins of some folio. He was a man of letters and rather learned. He left behind him five or six very curious manuscripts, among others a dissertation on this verse in Genesis. In the beginning, the Spirit of God floated upon the waters. With this verse, he compares three texts. The Arabic verse which says, the winds of God blew. Flavius Josephus, who says, a wind from above was precipitated upon the earth. And finally, the Chaldaic paraphrase of Onkelos, which renders it, a wind coming from God blew upon the face of the waters. In another dissertation, he examines the theological works of Hugo, Bishop of Ptolemaeus, great-granduncle to the writer of this book, and establishes the fact that to this bishop must be attributed the diverse little works published during the last century under the pseudonym Barleycourt. Sometimes, in the midst of this reading, no matter what the book might be which he had in his hand, he would suddenly fall into a profound meditation, whence he emerged only to write a few lines on the page of the volume itself. These lines have often no connection whatever with the book which contains them. We now have under our eyes a note written by him on the margin of a quarto entitled Correspondence of Lord Germain with Generals Clinton, Cornwallis, and the Admirals on the American Station. Versailles, Poincot, Bookseller, and Paris, Pissot, bookseller, Quai des Augustins. Here is the note. Oh, you who are, Ecclesiastes calls you the all-powerful. The Maccabees call you the creator. The epistle to the Ephesians calls you liberty. Baruch calls you immensity. The Psalms call you wisdom and truth. John calls you light. The book of Kings calls you Lord. Exodus calls you providence, Leviticus, sanctity, Estrus, justice, the creation calls you God, man calls you father, but Solomon calls you compassion, and that is the most beautiful of all your names. Toward nine o'clock in the evening, the two women retired and betook themselves to their chambers on the first floor, leaving him alone until morning on the ground floor. It is necessary that we should, in this place, give an exact idea of the dwelling of the Bishop of Dean.